Hey, it's Jay. There's this phrase or line that I keep sharing with people in this frenzied world focused on AI. The idea is both AI and you use an LLM as your foundation. AI has large language models and you have little life moments. But the key to all of this is that we need to confidently, consistently, everywhere we show up, pull from our little life moments, our own LLMs. In other words, the big and small moments, the observations, the the things that you have encountered out in the world or the things that happen to you, tiny daily routine things you can repackage into metaphors or longer term, more seminal transitions or journeys you've been on that can act like allegories containing a lesson. All of it is material. If AI is trained on internet content, then you are trained on the content of your life. And the question is, are you using that? Because it's the biggest and most unfair advantage that you possess to produce work that is original and insightful and higher impact. Now, crucial to all of this is the role of an effective storyteller, or rather the posture of an effective storyteller. There's no real technique for this. It's much more about your confidence or vision or taste. The posture is the way you see yourself and the world. And part of your posture as a storyteller is to imbue into those moments that you've lived some kind of meaning. What makes an amazing writer see a leaf fall or a magazine on a shelf or their coffee dripping out of the machine in the morning or a story that keeps coming up in their family's history and go, huh, you know, even though the topics of this story doesn't relate to the topics I'm teaching my audience, I can use this as material to teach and inspire. That's a posture thing. It's about working more bravely, not working smarter, not working harder, working more bravely. If you know how to imbue the work with things that could only come from you, well, then AI is like your intern. But if you struggle to do anything that is anything other than generic work. In other words, it just feels like it could come from anybody talking about topics that you're talking about. If you're not actively drawing on your LLM, then AI might replace that work. I guess in the end, what I'm really saying is this. Effective storytellers don't simply report the stories as it happened to them in their lives. They mold them. They shape them. They take a proactive, generous hand to imbue their stories with meaning. It's powerful, inspiring, but possible. It's unthinkable how creators trust themselves more than best practices. I'm Jay Akunzo, and I want more people to trust their own intuitions and their understanding of the craft compared to all these people who are selling you blueprints and hacks and cheats and, hey, just outsource it to a tool. And I think this is imminently doable for way more people. In other words, doing work that's more original and more you, that is more possible than ever. Because as you'll hear all over this show, it's only unthinkable to break from best practices and trust yourself from the outside looking in. It's not really unthinkable when you hear their side of the story. And today's story is, once again, about a story. So this is the next episode of our Signature Story series, where we're going inside how a masterful storyteller crafts and develops and reuses and evolves and and benefits from a key story that they love telling everywhere they show up.
And the reason we're doing this series is very simple. There's a very big difference between learning story and learning to be a storyteller. It's the difference between getting some kind of process or structure from others and embracing the other two pieces of mastering a craft, not process, but the practice, actually shipping the work and how that changes you. And a word I've mentioned already, the posture, how you see yourself, the work, and the world. So this is a closer look at really mastering the craft of not learning story, but learning to be storytellers. And today's storyteller is the author and speaker, Simone Stolsoff. Simone is the author of an amazing book called The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. He speaks at companies and conferences about careers and the future of work all over the world. And he consults with other organizations that are very values aligned with this message. He also reports and writes stories for national publications like The Atlantic and Wired. And he's a former design lead at the global innovation firm IDEO. There's a great quote from Simone that I wanted to read you. It's from an opinion piece he wrote for the New York Times in the summer of 2023. He's talking about this idea of loving what you do or love and work. Quote, the implication that love is a suitable stand-in for job security, workplace protections, or fair pay is a commonly held belief, especially in so-called dream jobs like writing, cooking, and working in the arts where the privilege to do the work is seen as a form of compensation itself. Unquote. This is something that I actually heard in my first job at Google, which was open with us as entry-level salespeople that they paid lower than market value for what we did because you got to work at Google and all the upside that it offered, a great culture, learning opportunities, etc. And so Simo continues to write for the Times, quote, but the rhetoric that a job is a passion or a labor of love obfuscates the reality that a job is an economic contract. The assumption that it isn't sets up the conditions for exploitation. I ask Simone about this type of stance and any kind of misconceptions that follow him in the book around the world. And we also go into a key story that he brings up, a very short story that gives you and I much more hope that we can write and speak with greater impact in a way that feels personal to each of us. So without further ado, let's meet Simone and dissect his story. The book is The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. You've done a ton of press at this point about the book. You've heard from a ton of people because a ton of people have read the book and an even larger number have like heard about the book and your ideas about the book. So a lot of people are aware of The Good Enough Job at this point. What is the biggest thing that people either misunderstand about this idea or you go out of your way to ensure they don't because you're worried they might? Mm, great question. I'd expect nothing less from you, Jay. <laughs> I think just looking at the title of the book alone, The Good Enough Job Reclaiming Life from Work, you might think that it's this slacker manifesto, that it's this excuse to not care about your job and sit on your couch more and kind of phone it in for a paycheck. And that's really not the point that I'm making. The idea with the book is for the time that we spend at work, I hope people are, are present. And for the time that they're not at work, I hope that they are also present in their lives outside of work. 
And I actually think that this idea of being anti-work or being even anti-capitalist is sort of a, a red herring. You know, we live in a material world. We must earn money in order to pay rent. And I think you and I can both relate to the days that tend to be hardest at work are the days where you don't feel engaged, the days where you don't feel like you have enough to do. And so I think there's this misconception that because I've written this book about right-sizing works place in our lives, that I think work is a necessary evil. And I don't. This miniseries is ultimately about stories. And of course, like you hear this phrase often, which is the story running in your head, right? Like, oh, that intellectual thing you're thinking of, that's part of the story in your head. Oh, that internal barrier writer's block, it's part of the story running in your head. I think that one of the most potent and evident stories running in our heads are the stories we tell ourselves about like our professional selves. You know, like mm -hmm. I remember being a student and it was all, you know, get the grades, go to the good school, get the extracurriculars, become a leader of that club or captain of that team. Then you work for the most famous brand you can get a job at, which for me was Google. And I did that and I was unhappy because mm -hmm. I had this story running in my head that like that was what success was. Right. So a story that's changed in my life is how I define success and what brings me joy and fulfillment at work. It is not that classic idea that was given to me like in a nice neat box from when I was young and all throughout school. So that story has changed over time in my head. I'm curious to hear from you about when you think of arriving at the need to write this book, what was a story that you previously had about work that changed to lead you there and what changed it? I think the story was that how we spend our days is how we spend our lives and we work more than we do anything else. And therefore the choice of what to do for work is the most consequential choice of our lives. And for me, someone who had sort of varied interests and wasn't exactly sure what my path would be professionally, I really white knuckle gripped this idea of finding the dream job. I sort of <laughs> thought that once I find that perfect job, everything else in my life will fall into place and everything else is sort of secondary in importance. Because if we're working for 40, 50, 60 hours a week, that's more than we see our family, that's more than we see our friends, and therefore that is mm. the decision. What's an example? What's a white knuckling like look like in your life? Well, there was a very particular crossroads where I was choosing between I, my background as a journalist. I was choosing between continuing to write for The Atlantic and, you know, be in the sort of New York magazine world or to leave to join IDEO, this other sort of global design and innovation firm. And it really sent me for an existential loop. You know, I didn't feel like I was choosing between two jobs. I felt like I was choosing between two versions of me. And that ultimately became the first kernel of the book, which is, you know, how did my work become so central to my identity? And I knew that I wasn't the only one. And so a few years of research, the question is this sort of this investigation into to how work has come to be so central to our lives. And then a bit of an editorial argument about the value of diversifying our lives beyond just what we do for work. Is there a fun, purely for yourself, creative project that if I were going to put, if I was going to walk through a museum of SEMA over time and just like bask in your creative glory someday, like in the early wing would be some kind of monument or framing of this project, what would go there? Yeah, I mean, it's very clear for me. My background is a spoken word poet. And so I was sort of like a <laughs> jock in high school. I played three sports and there was this kid on the baseball team named George Watsky 
who is a number of years older than me. And he, in addition to being a mediocre outfielder, was a poet. He <laughs> participated in this organization called Youth Speaks in, in the Bay Area that put on sort of youth poetry competitions and festivals. And sort of on a whim, I signed up for a, a workshop. And it was one of the most consequential decisions I made because I kind of went from this more athletics-driven persona into more of a creative or more of an artist. And I hope you don't go onto YouTube and look at all of these old college and high school poetry videos that still haunt me to this day. But that was my way into writing, you know, and then in college I studied poetry and that was sort of the retroactive history of how I became a writer. Any friction or embarrassment felt internally between like your identity as I'm a three sport athlete and your identity as a poet? I feel like to a certain extent, I've always been a chameleon. It reminds me, you know, Eric Erickson, who's a psychologist that has done a lot of the the research and identity formation and a lot of what we know about how identities are formed come from him. And he says that in your early years, especially in your adolescence, people form identities through exclusion. You know, so that's why it's stuff like cliques are so important. You figure out who you are by figuring out who you're not or mm. by putting another group down. And, you know, I think I was the beneficiary of going to a very small high school where everyone kind of did everything. You know, you could be on the basketball team and a tuba player. And so for me, there wasn't so much judgment, but it did sort of exist as an internal struggle between who am I and am I more of a football watcher on a Sunday or a moody kid writing poetry by the river? You know, (laughs) now I can see that I contain multitudes and I have a little bit more room for a nuance understanding of what my identity is. Was there a period ever where you felt the creative flame starting to flicker? And like, how did you keep that alive? You know, for me, I think about being in sales jobs early in my career and putting aside my path as a sports journalist, as a student, and, you know, writing a side blog saved me. Like having everything you see on my LinkedIn is is not a lie. It's just the tip of the iceberg because really there ought to be, and there, I think someone probably built it, a LinkedIn where I can showcase all these weird highly forgettable, but very meaningful projects I built just for myself, just when the day job or the gatekeeper wasn't saying, you have our permission. Did you go through any period like that? Yeah, I had a story in my head that being a creative or being a writer was not a responsible financial decision. Even through college, I majored in economics and poetry. And as I left college, I worked as a copywriter, which I thought was sort of like the business application of creativity or like the way to be a writer, but also like hedge my bets a little bit. I have this very distinct memory of, do you know who Sam Parr is? He founded The Hustle and some of these other sort of new age media companies that were Mm -hmm. acquired by HubSpot. And when I was about 24, 25, I had a meeting with Sam and like I knew deep down in my heart that I wanted to be a writer. And he was just starting this newsletter, The Hustle, from the ground up. And he was like, I can't quite tell looking at your resume. Like, do you want to be on the business side or do you want to be on the editorial side? And I could hear like my heart screaming, the editorial side, the editorial side, the editorial side. And what came out of my mouth was, I I want to be on the business side. And I think that was the result of a lot of self-judgment and a lot of internalized narratives around the value of creativity and how the smart, responsible decision is actually to pursue a more conservative or a more financially sound path. Yeah, it's causing my soul to ache a little bit because I remember working at, at HubSpot, actually. I was their head of content. But I was managing people. I wasn't writing. My team was writing. And we were doing so in a business context to drive sales leads. 
And I'd always aspired for the team to be doing more, but also for myself to be doing more. And while I struggled to get the team to do that, I knew it was out of reach entirely for myself because I was tasked with being the manager. And I waltzed into my office, my manager's office one day, and I was like, I don't think I'm doing the best work I'm capable of doing here. Mm. And he said, basically, I agree. And it's like, all right, strong start to the meeting. And and he laid it out for me this way. He's like, listen, you're early in this whole content marketing, like brands being media companies thing. You could be the world's best content strategist. Like, how do you lead teams and build teams and do that stuff? You're never going to be the world's best writer or creator. I mean, look at all the ones that exist in the business world and elsewhere. Mm. I was like, oh, okay, I guess that that makes sense. And I like walked away. And looking back, I was like, that was the worst advice ever. Because mm. like, what does that even mean? Like, be the best? You know, I'm not Steph Curry. Mm. You're not going to have a metric that all my competitors also have and you put it up on a ranking someday. Like, what does that mean, be the best? And I, I thought of that story recently and you just brought it back with like a heavy dose of emotion there for me because like I was so quick to say he's right because what he was pointing to mapped to this fear I had of like if it's not on the business side, if it is the editorial side, I was somehow exposed or not to be taken seriously or something like that. Yeah, it's hard. And I think like maybe to a certain extent, society is overcorrected in the other direction where now if you ask college students what jobs they want to be when they grow up, you know, the most popular response is influencer. You know, not to say that everyone can't be an influencer or everyone can't be a creator. I, I definitely subscribe to the idea that creativity is a skill and we are all creative and it's just a matter of exercising those muscles. But I do think rather than the sort of blind pursuit of art on one end of the spectrum and the blind pursuit of commerce on the other end of the spectrum, it is prudent to think about how those two things balance in your life. And I think if you are just pursuing commerce, you can find yourself in a position where you're climbing a ladder that you don't actually want to be on or playing a game that you don't actually hope to win. But if you're blindly pursuing art, you can find yourself in a situation where you're so preoccupied with how you're going to make rent that you can't actually focus on the art that you hope to create. And so I think the balance is how do you hold both of those things? How do you hold what you yourself value in one hand, what the world values in the other hand, and try and find and build a career that sits at their intersection? So the story you brought us today, uh, which we're going to hear then dissect, it's a short article that you wrote in 2020. Uh, So it's something you wrote before the book that very much relates to the book, The Good Enough Job. Is that true? It's true, and it's a story I've shared many times on on podcasts and in interviews, and it feels very pertinent to this conversation we're having. It really is about the balance between commerce and art. I would love to know quickly, just so we can place it in our heads before we hear the story, why did you choose to bring this one? I think it's a story that has become sort of like mythology in my own mind. (laughs) I'm not as connected to the embodied experience of what it was actually like as a 22-year-old when this story happened. And so part of the reason why I brought it was, one, I think it encapsulates a lot of the ideas that I have experience in through the research and, and my book, but also because I wanted to breathe new life into it and to dissect it and really think about it as an experience that I've had and a story that I tell as opposed to just another example and a litany of examples that I use to make a point. So the story begins as a 22-year-old poetry student, me, is embarking on his career, about to graduate college. I was at the University of Pennsylvania and I was studying 
poetry and economics. And so you could already see this tension between the pursuit of art and the pursuit of commerce in my life. And I had the opportunity to interview my favorite writer in the entire world. His name is Anis Mojgani. He's the current poet laureate of the state of Oregon. And he is a professional poet. He travels around the world sharing his words and he gets paid to, to write poetry. And so you couldn't believe my delight, you know, especially someone who is trying to figure out what to do with his future. And so I remember I, I called him up on the phone and I asked him, Anis, how do you feel about the mantra, do what you love and never work a day in your life? And I was excited for him to give me a pep talk to say, you know, go pursue that poetry degree, pursue that unknown future, and the money will work itself out later. And he didn't. He said something that I'll never forget. He said, you know, Simone, some people do what they love for work, and others do what they have to for work, so they can do what they love when they're not working. And neither is more noble. And it hit me like a brick. You know, I think that last part was particularly key, this idea that neither is more noble. I'd spent my entire life th to that point and largely to this day thinking that our jobs, the careers that we choose are the most consequential decision we make. And here was my professional idol, a, a professional poet, no less, telling me that it's all right to have a day job. <laughs> That story is not what people think of when they're like, well, I got to have a collection of stories. It's the story of this amazing entrepreneur, and I'm going to tell it end to end, and here's where they started. It looks like you, the audience. Here's this big inciting incident, and here's this challenge. It's like they get over the one challenge, and then everything was great, and let's talk about everything was great. This was a small little moment. Mm. And what I'm struck by, and the brevity speaks to this is I think a lot of storytellers would hesitate to find any significance in a moment like that because it doesn't feel like some kind of well-developed thing. But yeah. it, it's not something that the news would write about, you know? Not at all. Yeah, I think it's about the quote. And in many ways, the story is just a big setup for that punchline. Some people do what they love, others do what they have to so they can do what they love when they're not working and neither is more noble. You know, I could dress it up. You know, I could use it as the lead to a larger story about how in my 20s I spent my 20s playing Goldilocks with careers and I didn't heed his advice and blah, blah, blah. But I think the the power of the story is to let the quote speak for itself. And I think the reason why it works is because it's somewhat subversive. You know, it it undermines this this common knowledge that we have about always do what you love. You know what WeWork has plastered on its mugs and the walls of its co-working spaces. <laughs> and I think there's a level of catharsis that a listener can experience. And I experienced myself when I heard it of, wow, maybe it's okay to lower the stakes a little bit. And maybe I don't need to find a vocational soulmate and I can just find a job that allows me to be the person that I want to be when I'm not working. Yeah. And so from a storytelling perspective, you know, I've told it in different ways, but I think the strength of the brevity is that it allows the, the punchline to really speak for yeah. itself. 
we, you and I have talked behind the scenes about your your keynotes that you've been doing for the book. Did it make its way onto the stage? Is that part of your part yeah. of your act, essentially? Yeah, yeah. I, I normally either lead with it or close with it or incorporate it at some point in in the middle. And I think the reason why audiences seem to connect with it is because one. This position of thinking about how I have these multiple interests, these multiple sides inside of me, and I'm trying to figure out which one to express or which direction to choose is so common. Like I, in this story, sort of represent the audience. And maybe not everyone is both thinking about poetry or economics or business or creativity, but whatever that crossroads is for them, whether to go to law school or whether to work on your novel, whether to you know, move to New York and pursue that finance job or stay in your hometown and, and work for your parents, you know, whatever the crossroads might be is a very relatable state. And it also creates stakes for the stories because there are two paths to potentially choose. We want to know what happens and and what advice I get. And I think there's a turn, which is, you know, I was expecting him to say one thing and he said something else that I'll never forget. And I remember from, I was talking about this story once with like a, a storytelling coach and she was like, make sure that you pause after that moment, like really marinate in that tension of what he said that was not in line with what you expected him to say. And I think that was always a, a great note from a storytelling perspective. And then just from a sheer language perspective, there's something about the quote, you know, some people do what they love, others do what they have to, so they can do what they love when they're not working, that is sticky. It's something that people will write down. It's something that, you know, people will return to again and again, maybe if it's helpful in, in their own journey and their own exploration. And that largely answered a question I emerged from, which was, well, if it really is, and as you said right after you told the story, it really is about the quote. So why tell it as a story? Why not say this writer says this? And like you said, it sets the stakes. It plants me there almost in the way that like you could share a metaphor for something. And that's a quick comparison that arrives at an insight. Or you could share an allegory, which is a story that's almost like you taking the audience on a journey to the insight. That's kind of what you were doing here is you were taking on us on this little mini journey to make the insight more powerful, to make it inescapable, more memorable. You, you kind of answered that first question I was going to ask. And, but the other one was about the idea of the pause. I love that you brought that up because I think so often, and ironically in this series, it's coming up and I've had to give language to it. And the word that keeps coming up is to isolate those moments, to isolate a key moment that matters to the story for other people and, of course, for yourself as the storyteller. And a pause is an inescapably obvious way to isolate the preceding moment or even the next one coming up. Mm -hmm. That's just a word that keeps coming back around in this series, is the importance of understanding what those moments are and then doing something to isolate it. It also invites the audience to participate to a certain degree. Yeah, you know, when yeah. I say, I thought he was going to say this thing, but he didn't, it allows for space for the audience in their minds to be like, well, did he say this? Did he say this? What could he have said? If I had said, I thought he was going to say this, but instead he said that. It doesn't allow for that room. It reminds me of John Cage, this kind of canonical American classical music composer. He has this song where he is counting and it's like one, two, three, four, six, seven, 
and he pauses where you would think the five would be. And the natural inclination is every single person, you know, knows that that's five, you know, but by not making that explicit, he incorporates the audience into the music somehow. He allows our minds to participate in the song. One of the things that some people aren't doing enough, I don't think, is drawing from their own lived experiences to find little moments, things that were meaningful, things that were notable, even if the news won't write about them, and use those as like an allegory or a metaphor. You know, it's like, I keep chickens in my yard. That's a great source of metaphor for teaching marketing. Okay, Mm. great. Use that. Or what you were doing was it was more on the nose thematically to what you were talking about, but it was a tiny lived experience that you saw fit to, to bring up. And I don't think we're drawing enough from those those moments and like i know this is a bit of a heady question why why do you think that is it seems so obvious to some people that they would retell that that you live through and then some people they either forget it or bury it or they think ah no one's going to care i think the inner critic is loud in these situations Mm -hmm. and especially if you've had a unique experience there is the inclination to be like I don't know who will relate to this. You know, how many people studied poetry and economics or how many people could relate to this experience of a a spoken word artist? And that great irony is that the most personal often is the most universal because it taps into these deeper emotions that underlie just the plot points. And I think there's also an inclination to sort of hedge And by saying like an aphorism or saying something that is really general, you're thinking that, okay, maybe someone will be able to transpose their own lived experience onto this message. But it's hard. There's not really handholds to grab. In journalism, there's this idea of of don't bury the lead, you know, like really start with the insight. In, In storytelling, often... The opposite is true. Leading with the story and getting to the insight through the story is really priming the audience to be able to hear the insight and for it to to resonate. You know, if I had started the story and said, this is a story about not doing what you love for work, then like you hear something like that and you're like, okay, like maybe bro, but there's nothing that you've given me in order to nod my head and say yes. By leading with the story, you're sort of bringing the audience along for the journey and making them more primed or or susceptible to understand and really resonate the wisdom of what you're trying to say. I was jotting down as you were talking, I wrote the word safety wheels Mm. because it does kind of feel like, like when I start, I'm tempted just to speak in platitudes or generalized or speak about like, if I'm speaking to a group of entrepreneurs, it's what one must do as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And then I start to incorporate some stories. And even then, a safety wheel of the story I'm, I'm riding out here is, here's what the story is about. I promise it's going to be worth your time. You're sort mm-hmm. of like either over-summarizing it and giving away the farm, or you're excusing the fact that you're about to tell a story instead of standing up and proudly and confidently beginning that story. It's like the real professional storyteller doesn't really need to do something like that because they know how to use the actual content of the story to just send you off on a journey. So there's all these like safety wheels, which are not without use. I think they get us to the point where we can take them off. And it feels to me like the hardest one to take off, and I struggle with this too, is not wrapping it up in a nice neat bow, not like spelling it all out 
at the very end. And I wonder in your wealth of journalism experience and storytelling and, you know, now on stages and on podcasts, where that fits. Like you are trying to teach people. How do you navigate that problem? It's a tough one. I think, you know, endings and conclusions are often the hardest thing to write. And for good reason, because we're used to this formulaic sort of tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you said formula. And in the best endings, it brings you to a new place. It's not just a regurgitation of what you've already heard. You know, even in that story, I could have probably waxed poetic for another few minutes about the impact of that quote and why I think it's important and how we live in a society that loves to revere people whose identities and their jobs neatly align and why it's cool to have someone who's a professional poet telling me this other way. But I think it can discount the intelligence of the audience to be able to draw those conclusions themselves. And so, so often what I think about when I think about endings is in journalism, we'd call it a a kicker, you know, something that really packs a, a punch at the end of a story. Often it's a quote or a place to kind of let off that makes the reader's mind keep working and keep going. And I think it's so much easier said than done. I think endings are really difficult, but step one is unlearning some of the in-conclusion paragraphs that we're taught to write in middle school. In conclusion, when I see that appearing in a professional's writing, I just understand that they just decided to turn to a bot to create an entire piece for them without much effort. Uh, in conclusion, nobody says in conclusion when they actually conclude, at least not when they do it well. Yeah. A few things that I've seen that work well. Is there a way that you can come back to the beginning somehow? Like, is there a way if you like throw up a ball in the first minute of a piece or a speech or what have you, you can come back and catch that ball at the end? Is there a way that you can end on a story? One of the great things about a story beyond just being entertaining is it can make the point that you're trying to make without you having to say, in conclusion, you know, diversify your identity beyond work. And I think another just performance aspect of it is if you're giving a a speech or if you're reading something publicly, can you look up for the first and last line? Even if you're reading it, even if you want to stick and be faithful to your notes, there's something so powerful about looking up and reciting the last line. Because so often the inclination is to do exactly what you said, is to be like, and so, yeah. But if we are going to leave people, audiences, with just one thought, can you really imagine the period at the end of that yes. sentence and really yes. stick it? You must draw a lot from your experience with spoken word poetry on, on stage as a keynote, I imagine. Like, that sounds like one of those things that transfers. Yeah, definitely. I'm lucky in that, like, there's sort of two aspects of spoken word. There's writing and there's performance. Yeah. And mostly in my career, I focused on the writing side of things. And now as I'm doing a little bit more speaking or even just talking about the book or doing live events, I'm tapping back into that that rush of, of being on stage or the performance aspect of it. Yeah. And it's yeah. important to understand that, you know, storytelling is a performance, whether it's on the page or on the stage or some other medium, understanding that your job is to entertain is an important sort of mindset to get into. Right. And there's sort of this 
underscored point throughout the way I like to end things. And I imagine it's similar in, in your world, whether it's on a stage or in writing or like end with a sense of drama, like not Shakespeare in the park over the top playing to the far back end of the park and not like sensationalizing, but having this spirit of I'm ending with purpose, right? And scene in not so many words. So like ending with a sense of drama. And I remember like early in my speaking career, for example, there's like different archetypes of movement you see in speakers. Like you have the statues, they just sort of stand there, maybe stand behind the podium. You have the drifters where there's kind of like sort of softly, slowly lilt around the stage without purpose. I was a caged lion back and forth, back and prowling. And I remember the way I caught myself was in watching a video of me doing that. Not only did I notice it, but as far as it serves the audience, like a structural change I could make was, wait, at the end, I'm like way off to the side. Hmm. And like, if I just focused on whatever I'm doing right before the ending, if my movement takes me back to center, that's like one concrete step in the right direction. That's kind of like my version of you looking up. Because obviously as a speaker, I am looking up at all times or most times. Um, do you have other like little tricks, heuristics, things that kind of serve you well to match the performance to the story, to the content? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty green when it comes to speaking in professional circumstances. But one thing that has also stuck with me from my poetry days is there was this line that we would always use, less preface, more poetry. You know, especially when someone is reading a new piece of work, the tendency is to, you know, get up on stage or if you're just going around the circle and be like, so um, this is new, it's not really polished yet, I haven't like really read it for that many people, um, I'm still working through the ending, but you know, have mercy on my soul. And doing all of this work to sort of discredit your own credibility. But if you can, when it's your turn, just go right into it and exactly what you were saying, you know, show, don't tell your credibility or your credentials. That's the primacy thing, right? It's the, the first thing that they hear coming out of your mouth should not be a, a disclaimer. So less, right. uh, less preface, more poetry. Right. Disclaimers, discredit. There you go. There's a little, a little handle to hold on to. Two final questions on the story. So one is, you've said you've told this in multiple places. Are you aware at this point of like, okay, this different context is going to require this different execution of the same story? Yeah, definitely. The nice thing about having a, a back pocket story like this is it feels pretty comfortable for me to give different versions of it or to iterate on the fly. Like, for example, recently I, I gave a speech for a group of faculty from graduate schools of colleges across the country. And these are all people that work in career services that are helping students like me figure out their careers. And so I like leaned a little bit more into the fact that I was a senior in college and that I was deciding what to do. And I wasn't really sure what career I wanted to do afterwards. I imagine if I were in an audience that was, for example, a bunch of poets or a bunch of literary writers, I might lean more into the idea of the nerves of, you know, pursuing creativity or art as a career. I think length is a big thing that you can modulate. You know, if it was a younger audience, I might keep the story shorter. If it's an older audience or they might be more bought into what I have to say, I can go a little bit longer. And it's a story of my own life, you know. And so I think one of the nice things is I'm not just regurgitating some other story. I have endless amounts of context to give if need be. You've been someone who's been writing and creating at a high level 
for notable publications. And with this book now, you're more in the public eye telling stories. How systematic do you get with trying to make sure, like, as you're living your life, you're documenting some things? Because it's one thing for me to stay on this microphone and appear every week and say, you should be drawing from your lived experience Mm -hmm. to tell stories big and small. It's an entirely different matter for people to, like, capture, remember, you know, develop those stories. I have, like, many writers or creatives, endless notes on my phone of just chicken scratch ideas here and there. I keep a notebook by my bed in case something comes to me at a time that's inopportune. I have a rule with myself that if I ever feel, like, that burning urge to write, I always have to do it because, like, if I don't do it then, then when when else am I going to do it? I remember I once had the opportunity to interview uh, Garrison Keillor. He did the Prairie Home Companion podcast and all these things. And he writes these sort of like whimsical limericks. I remember asking him, you know, on days where you're not feeling it, Garrison, like, how do you continue to write these limericks? And he said something that is etched into my mind, which he said, you know, son, a carpenter doesn't need inspiration to work on houses. A dentist doesn't need inspiration to work on teeth. I sit my butt in that chair and I write, you know? And I think that mentality of this is the craft and some days it'll come easily and those days are sort of the the fruits of the labor of the days where you continue to return to the blank page or return to the desk on days where it's not flowing as easily yeah and also the idea that these stories get imbued with meaning you know like even that moment i remember having that interview and i wasn't like oh my god this is a seminal moment in my life that's gonna influence the way that i think about careers and jobs it was a cool opportunity i had to interview this famous guy and over time over the years through reflection i've imbued this story with so much meaning and so i think you know, when people are thinking about mining their own personal histories, they think, oh, I've never, you know, like survived cancer or have won the championship. But why does someone like David Sedaris continue to publish books again and again about his personal life? It's because he can imbue these small moments with meaning. Thanks for listening. This episode was written and edited by me with production help from Alana Nevins. Special thanks to Simone Stolsoff for his creativity and generosity in this episode. If you share the show, and I hope you do, please remember to thank him too. By the way, his book, The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. If you want to become a more effective storyteller, that's not learn story, but become an effective storyteller, I write every other week to my free newsletter, sending one idea with how to do just that. It's all about how to resonate deeper and stand out easier by doing work that's higher impact, work that is more insightful, more original to you, work that matters. Subscribe for free at jayaconzo.com or check your show notes for a link. While you're there, check out The Creator Kitchen. The Kitchen is a mastermind that I help run and co-founded with Melanie Diesel, an amazing author and speaker in her own right. And together, we're running this organization to help transform smart experts into more influential voices. There are too many experts out there being drowned out by people who are all hype, no help, no substance. We want to equip people who want to make things 
that are meaningful with the skills to do that, the skills to stand out easier and resonate deeper. So if you're on that path and you'd like some community support and some one-to-few direction from me and Melanie, check out the Creator Kitchen at creatorkitchen.com. I'm back in two weeks with our final episode of this Signature Stories mini-series. I cannot wait to share with you the story we dissect. Until then, keep making what matters. See ya. See ya.